I want you to turn to Luke chapter 5. The last couple of weeks here at Refuge, we have been diving deep into one of the early New Testament church letters by a guy named Paul, and he wrote to his friends in Corinth, and so we were looking at 1 Corinthians. I'm taking a bit of a detour and heading away from the Corinthians end of things as I grab my balance, and we're going to head into Luke chapter 5. This is the gospel reading that is assigned to February 6th. All around the world, if you go to churches that follow the lectionary, it's a church calendar, and it actually divides the readings of the Bible up into segments, and there will be churches all around the world who will dive into this exact passage. So in some ways, we have solidarity to know that we're not just willy-nilly pulling something out of Scripture, but we're jumping into a stream of people all around the world who are learning and walking this exact road. So Luke chapter 5 tells a story. For some of us, it's going to be a story that's quite familiar, or at least might sound familiar. It's when Jesus is hanging out with some fishermen. So let's jump right into it with no other comments needed. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there, by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. And haven't caught anything. But because you said so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken, and so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Now those are the cold, hard facts of the day. And sometimes, if you're like me, when you read the Bible, you're like, I would love some of the soft, warm facts. Like, I know it's the cold, hard facts, and Jesus showed up and did this miraculous thing, but what was really going on that day? Could you read the expression on the crowd? Did the crowd stay around for the moment when they caught the large number of fish? How long was it between the moment when Simon said to Jesus, we've been fishing all night? And then he says, but you said so, we'll do it. How long did it take? What was Simon's facial expression? Because I'm always reading that. I love reading facial expressions. Just ask my kids. You're not telling the truth. I can see it, right? All these kinds of things happen. I wonder what's really going on. So we're here in the Lake Gennesaret. It's also known as Lake Kinneret. That was the previous name. It also is known by um, some standards right around this time when Jesus is speaking and leading as Lake Tiberias or perhaps it's more familiar phrase to many of us, the Sea of Galilee. 
And so you can see the imagine, you can imagine what it would be like to be on the Sea of Galilee. And actually, for one minute, I have a drone flyover of what's happening. I'm going to ask Karina to push play on this. You'll see it in modern day. Obviously, they didn't have drones back then. But this is what's happening here at the Sea of Galilee. There we go. So we're going to fly over a little bit. You'll see a glimpse of what's happening. And you can, you can watch while I talk. But here at the Sea of Galilee, it's the largest lake in Israel. They have bodies of water all over the place, but water is so desperate to the people that live in this region. It's so arid and dry, and they need water. It's fed by the Jordan River to the north as the the streams begin, and it goes down to the south all the way down to the Dead Sea, which is where life is extinguished. It's so filled with salt. If you go there to this day, you will be able to float. But here at the Sea of Galilee is life. This is known where you go to fish. This is how people have a livelihood. And so when we jump into this story, it's not an awkward story for us to this day because this is still what people do. There are still fishermen that fish at the Sea of Galilee because it's a source of life and livelihood and well-being and income and influence. This is where Jesus is at. But when he's on the side of the sea and he is teaching the people, he is trying to get their attention. And it makes sense for him as the crowd is gathered. I mean, he has just healed someone. If you look into the the previous chapter, he's doing these miraculous things and the people are coming in. And sometimes when you have a a large crowd, it's hard to get, get your voice heard. And he had to figure out, well, what do I do? And so he knew that if he were to go into the boat right there at the shore, just a few feet out, the projection of his voice would work better because of even the acoustics of the setting. So more people could hear. And he's noticing his surroundings, and he's noticing the guys over here, Peter, James, and John, who were cleaning their nets. And I wonder what it would have been like for Jesus to say to them, hey, why don't you push out, and let's go, uh, let's go fishing again. Could you imagine the energy that Jesus shows up with? It's not unlike the energy of a person who... Uh, I don't know if you've ever moved before, if you've ever like moved furniture or anything like this. It's like the person who shows up after the moving has done. It's like, hey guys, can I help now? You're like, that's the energy that I imagine Jesus is doing. He's a little bit late to the party and they've been fishing all night and this is what they do. And it's like listening to someone who doesn't know what they do. I was talking about fishing with a friend of mine this week and he, had, he told me the story about how when he went out to learn how to fish, he had to learn how to fish from his uncle because his dad did not know how to fish. And his uncle was the one who did like the manly things in the extended family. And so he took his nephew out to learn how to fish. But my friend's dad was actually really... Um, it just felt uh, emasculated. He's like, I need to go teach my son how to fish. Enough of you know, my brother doing this. I need to be the one who does this. And so he creates these wild and crazy schemes about, I know how to fish better than even my brother. You need to listen to me. And my friend is telling me, I'm like, Dad, you've never been fishing. You know nothing. But his dad one day goes out with him to fishing. He's like, here's the, what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to grab fish oil, and you're supposed to just lather it on all of the, all of the lures that you throw out, in there, and then the fish will be like, ooh, it's a small fish. I'll go get it. And it's like listening to that kind of energy of someone who's trying to show you, as the person who knows what you're supposed to do, what you're supposed to do. That's the energy that I expect Jesus is having that day, or I imagine him having that day, because I bet Peter, James, and John were frustrated. We have been fishing all night. We know these waters. If you go to the Sea of Galilee today, they still fish past daylight because they know that most of the catch happens when it's dark. And so Jesus has the audacity, the gall, if you would, 
to say to them, you should push out and let's go fishing again. And again, I wonder, what was the time period between Jesus hearing Peter say, we've fished all night, we've caught nothing, to where he says, all right, master, since you're the one who said it, let's go do it. But I also wonder, and I'm that guy, did Peter say it in such a way of like, let's go prove you wrong. There's no fish out there. We've been doing this all night. And as he goes out, and as they go out, obviously you know the story, and it's the quick version of the story, and the miraculous moment happens. And this great catch of fish, and it's overloading the one boat. They have to signal to their friends, and their friends show up, and there's this thing that happens. It's overloaded with fish. And so the point of the story, you can think, is like, well, let's go fishing. And many of us don't go fishing anymore like that. And it's a sad thing. We should probably find a lake and we could see fish happen if we wanted to. But that's not the point of the story. Because the point of the story for Jesus with his friends that day is to realize what he's asking is something that we can't see. And that's the point for his friend Peter and James and John. If you'll notice, as Luke, our storyteller, is telling the story, he begins the story using his friend's name, Simon. All along, he is just Simon. But the moment the fish come in and they have to grab their friend in the other boat and load it all into the two boats and it's overloading almost to the point of sinking, that is the moment when Peter cries out to Jesus, I am a sinner, get away from me. Even one, one version of the, of the Bible that I read this week said, don't even waste your time on me. Because sometimes when we are caught as, as unbelievers or not even believing the fullness of who God is or what Jesus says, we can have this distancing. Or we can have this distancing when we have sin in our life. We're like, I don't think God wants anything to do with me when I have sin in my life. And it's, that's an unfortunate place to be because we don't actually get that from how Jesus operates or how God even interacts with his people. Because most of the time, we assume we're supposed to be so far away from the deity if we have sin in our life. That's why people would cleanse themselves and become pure before they went to the temple. Temples of any kind, whether the Jewish temple back in the day or even temples even in our day today. You're like, I got to get myself right before I show up because until I'm right, God can't deal with me. And it's as if Jesus says to Peter, hey, I know you didn't believe me. I know you don't see what I see. And you don't have to be far from me. And I know you feel guilty right now. And you don't imagine that you have a place in my kingdom. But trust me, don't be afraid. Because right now, you're no longer going to just fish for people. It's that phrase that we've heard before, and some of you more really like more familiar than others, but this idea that we're supposed to become fishers of men, which is always weird. Like, how do you do that? Do you stand at the side of the road with a fishing pole? That would be awkward. I don't think you should. If you catch a lure in the side of your lip, it's going to hurt. Please don't do it. But what is Jesus getting at? It's that moment when Luke tells a story and Simon falls at, his, at Jesus' feet and he says, I'm a sinner, I, you can't, don't even deal with me. That's when Luke changes his, his name back to what Jesus has already proclaimed about him and said, you're not just Simon to me, you're also Simon Peter. And Peter is this rock, this word, Petros, is this rock that I'm going to build things upon your faith. And Peter, 
is no shining example. We love Peter because he messes up all the time. And you're like, if Jesus can do something with Peter, Jesus can possibly do something with me. He's the guy who talks too fast. He's the one who says things he shouldn't. He's the one who jumps out of the boat when he thinks he's trusting God, and then he falls and he sinks. What do we do with a story like this today? Because otherwise, it's just nice history. We're nice in the setting of the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Gennesaret. But what is it all about? How is it that I can draw a connection to so long ago when the story was first told to today in 2022? What am I supposed to do with this as I, as I read these words and I see what's happening? I want the same kind of experience that Peter had to be amazed yet again that Jesus is who he says. But if I'm going to be really honest with you, sometimes... I am living off of the miracles that God has done in the past, and I don't have eyes to see the miracles he's doing now. That's the hard part. I have seen God act. I have seen him do amazing things. But I'm wondering, do I have eyes to see him this week? What is he up to that's, that will just amaze me? that will have me become so overcome with, oh, I don't know if you want anything to do with me because I have not believed in the way that's necessary. And I need Jesus' words like he said to Simon Peter that day, Brenton, don't be afraid. But now you don't get to just fish for fish, you get to fish for people. The interesting thing about that phrase, fish for people, we use that, we put it on bumper stickers at times, um, we can put it all over the place. But the phrase in Greek, this idea of fishing for people, is a little bit of a misnomer, if you will. It's actually more of, of the phrase catch. And you're like, that's not too far off. If you're going to fish for people, you're going to catch for people. I get you. Calm down. Catch, though, has more to do. This word is not used that often in Greek. And the word itself is actually to do with catch someone who is alive. It's to catch the person and not to kill them. In the environment of the Roman Empire, we knew full well how Rome acted. When they showed up in your town and you didn't believe that the emperor was Lord, you either met death or imprisonment until you got to death. And so for them, they wouldn't catch you alive. They often just put you to death if you didn't believe the right thing. And so to catch something that's alive is to actually to keep it and to have the ability to think that restoration's possible. So when I'm out there catching what Jesus is calling me to go catch, I'm catching things that are alive, that hope for more life to come. That's the essence of what Jesus is getting at with his friends. But there are three, um, if you will, geographical locations in this story. Jesus starts on the shore. He begins to teach a little bit further, just a few feet into the water, into the shallow end, and then he takes the boys and the boats out into the deep, which is really helpful for some of us because we might actually be in one of these three phases, if you will. Some of us are here on the, on the shore where it's a little bit safer, Sometimes we might dip our toe into further water and wonder, I don't know if I can trust you, God, with where you're taking me. And then there's these moments where Jesus is like, go out into the deep. Would you trust me with what you don't see? And those are hard places to think about. 
because I want my faith to be sure. I want you to show me before I go. But the stories of faith through Scripture all around are stories of you've got to trust before you see. Do you see what's to come? Do you understand what's to come this week or in the following? And most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we can do our best to create control. We love our calendar. We love our bank account. We love our systems. We love how we have controlled things. And my question is, is when I've controlled things, am I able to actually allow God to surprise me? Am I able to see his leading in the places that I don't know about? Would I have the courage to trust him? Or do I just stay in my box of safety and say, you can do this, God, but go no further? Because if you go further than that, you'll mess me up. You'll mess everything up about how I have planned, of how I have put my life in order it's exactly where Peter, James, and John were that day. They had their life in order. They weren't the followers of any rabbis around. They had already failed that test. They didn't get the score. And so what are they going to do? They're probably doing what their dad did. They're going to fish. And they had been on that seashore for years. This is what they were good at. This is what they did. And it's no, no surprise that chapters forward in the story, after Jesus dies on the cross and he's resurrected, but before he's shown himself to all of his disciples, there comes a moment where they don't know what to do. They're like, I don't know. Like, did we, did we bet on the wrong horse? That's ultimately what they're saying. But if you get to John chapter 21, where do they go? They go back to the shore to go fishing because they have no other hope of what to do. I mentioned that to you because there's these, these moments for us where we're like, I'm going to do what's safe. I'm going to be okay with God wowing me, but if he doesn't continue to show up, I'm going to go back to what's safe. That's exactly what the disciples did before Jesus shows back up on the shore in John 21 and cooks them some fish, and then they, their eyes are opened yet again. And I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but the story is just so grand to understand that as we look at these pages of Scripture, it's not just some random stories connected it's a story of how God is constantly challenging his people into faith. Would you believe him to be who he says he is, or are we just going through the motions? And we get to Luke chapter 5, and Simon Peter and his friends say, Get away from me, Lord. We, we don't get you. And Jesus says, Don't be afraid. I wonder how he said it. Did he shout it? Probably not. Wouldn't make sense in a boat. Was it filled with kindness? Was it filled with disdain? Was it filled with disappointment? And again, we think these moments when we are caught in our sin that I have to get further away from God. And Jesus is like, don't be afraid. I can still come close. Don't be afraid. I am not put off by your sin. Don't be afraid. I understand that sin is not the greatest thing for you because it messes up your relationships with others and it messes up you. But don't be afraid. It doesn't mean that we don't get to interact. And there are stories and versions of the story out there that say that if you're a sinner, God wants nothing to do with you. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. If we get anything right from the story, we understand that God still wants to deal with Peter, James, and John, even if they didn't believe. 
because he wants to wow people with who he is. Have you been wowed lately by who God is? What are you hoping for today? What are you hoping for in your life? What are you praying about or do you have it all figured out in your box? My guess is if we're honest with one another, if we were really honest with one another, we don't know what's to come. And that scares us. But it doesn't scare him. It scares us because we wonder, will we make it? Will we survive? Will it be good for us? And Jesus is saying, trust me. Trust me with what's to come. Would you actually put everything down and trust him? These guys in their boat that day, unlike any of the other stories where Jesus calls his disciples and he says to them, come follow me, he doesn't say those words specifically this day. He just shows up and shows off and allows the fish to be caught. And the guys have nothing else to do but to lay their nets down, pull their boats onto the shore, and say, he's worth following. I don't know where he's going, but I want to go with this guy. I don't know what's to come, but I know who I'm following. And that is exactly where I find myself today. I don't know what's to come. I cannot write the future. I wish I could. Oh, I wish I could. My own, my kids, maybe some of yours. I don't get to do that. But if I don't know how the story goes and I don't know where it's taken me, the only thing I hold to is the fact that I know the one that I'm following. And he has wowed me before and he has shown up and showed off in my life and he will continue to do it over here because he's worth following because there's days where the fish come into abundance and I don't know where they came from. Where I'm just like, I don't deserve your love, your grace, your truth, God. And I hear this still small voice that says, don't be afraid. I want you to join me in this adventure of catching people that are alive and showing them what life looks like and reminding people over and over and over again that this God who gets mentioned in this book is not dead and he is worth following because he is still on the move. The other challenge is, if I can be real honest with you, is that sometimes I don't get to choose the people that he puts on my path. Sometimes we assume that if I'm going to order my life into this box, I'm only going to deal with the people who believe like I do and think like I do. And God is going to mess me up if that's what I hold to. Because he's going to put people on my path that think differently than me, that see the world differently than me. And he's going to say, would you bring them life? Would you bring them the good news? I felt like such a failure this week when my son had to do a Latin test at school. Don't get too um, worked up. He, it's not that kind of a school. He's not really learning Latin. Um, he has to wor learn words. Like, there's no part of him that we're going to go to, like, ancient Rome, and he's just going to lead us, right? Like, that's not going to be it. Uh, although it'd be really cool. And... 
he's going to get a dollar if one of you mentions that I talk about him in this sermon. So that's the rule that we have in our family. My youngest, she's got a lot of money right now. Um, he's not, so I got to mention him, make up a little bit of that. But he's doing Latin words for some class. I don't even remember what class it is. I think it might be science because there's Latin-based words in science. I'm just, I know what class it is. I'm just having fun with you. So he's going through these words, and he comes across this word. It's so great. Uh, it's evangel. He's like, I don't even know how I'm going to remember this word. And I'm like, are you kidding me? He's like, I've never heard it. I'm like, what's the point of my life right now? You've never heard this word? He's like, I don't even know what it means. It says something about good news. And I'm like, what? How have I failed you? We don't speak Latin in our home, but I thought that would have come across to you. He's like, I've never heard of it. Mike, here's the deal. It's called evangelism for a reason. It's to bring good news. He's like, okay. I mean, there's like, there's like schools named after this thing that exists. Your uncle went to it. It's out there in Missouri. People don't go to that state, but they might go to that school. I don't know. It's, God, it's good news. Have you ever heard me say something like, we want to bring the good news of Jesus to people. He's like, yeah, I've heard you say that. That's evangelism. That's evangelic. It's good news. He's like, I hope I get it right. I'm like, me too. <laughs> Otherwise, please don't tell me the results of this test. I'm a failure. So when I think about these words and the people that God puts on my path, and I might not always agree with them, but I do have a calling. And I think it's not just for me. Actually, I know it's not just for me. It's actually for all of us. It's this calling to say, I'm going to bring good news to whoever comes across my path. They may not agree with me in everything that I believe in, but that's not for me to fix all the time. I'm just to, to bring good news. I'm to be the one who brings the good news of Jesus Christ. And it may be subtle. I'm not the guy who starts off questions with people all the time, like over coffee, if I've just met them, like, where are you at on the Jesus thing? You're like, all right, we might want to ease our way into that, right? But I also had coffee with someone this week who reminded me the beauty of a simple question at a dinner table. When you're out at a restaurant, do I care even for the server? Do I care for the people who make the food? And I know it's like, you're like, it's a low thought, but they are still people made in the image of God. And would I even ask a simple question like, hey, in a minute, I'm gonna pray over this food. Is there anything that I can pray for you about? I wonder where those questions and conversations would lead to if I would take that seriously. Rather than thinking, oh, it's so awkward for me to mention Jesus in a world where people hate Jesus. The funny thing is, people don't hate Jesus. Sometimes they hate Christians. Because we smell like fish sometimes. It is not a good smell. We smell stinky. I mean, have you ever put those things on your lure? Not like this crazy snake oil or fish oil that you're supposed to do that my friend's dad told him about. Like you put things on your lure at times to like get the fish in and it stinks. You're like, sometimes that's what Christians are. 
what would it be like if we were to present a picture of who Jesus is that's better and that smells better? Oh, how the world would change. Because again, the people in this world don't have a problem with Jesus. Sometimes they just have a problem with his followers. And I feel convicted in that. Like, what am I doing that shows him to be who he is? Where people take a step back and wonder, oh, this Jesus you've been telling me about this whole time is actually worth following. Because if you follow him, maybe I should give him a chance too. That's what I want to do with my life. I don't want it any other way. And the cool thing is, it doesn't actually matter what you do. You don't have to be a pastor to do this. You don't have to be a missionary in some culture that goes far away. The funny thing is, is I know many of you, and you deal with non-Christians more than I do. And I bet you have the opportunity to show them who Jesus is all the time. I don't know what your comings and goings are all the time. I don't know your stories. Some of you I do. But my guess is each of us have an opportunity to share this good news. Because God puts us on a path that will take us to people that we are not expecting. And we get to showcase and show off who Jesus is. And again, subtlety is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But let it go to places of real depth when it's needed. And remind people that the God who showed up that day on the lake side to remind these fishermen that there was more to their life than what they had imagined and how they had boxed it in. Because these are the guys that said, I don't know where we're going, but I know who we're following, and that's worth it. So that is my prayer and my hope for each one of us this week. I don't know where God will take you this week. I don't know where he will put you. But may you bring good news wherever you go. So let's pray. Jesus, these are challenging words when we consider all that you have done for us. Because sometimes our own idiosyncrasies and our own insecurities cause us to fall back and like, I don't know if we can do this thing called sharing good news. But God, may we be challenged. May we be inspired. May we be um, put on the right path by even what you did so long ago with these fishermen on the side of the seashore. We don't want to just rely on what you've done in the past. We also want to be readily present and available for how you are moving and working and having your being this week. May we trust you. May we see you. And may we believe the one who we follow into the unknown, into the future, into tomorrow. And for many of us, it might even be this afternoon. May we have our eyes to see all that you're doing and to trust you in big ways. May we even be courageous to step out in faith and to see your kingdom come this week. Oh, you are worth following, and I want to follow you better this week. It's in your name we pray.